0: You're listening to Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette. And I'm Molly Ruth, producer for the podcast. Superpower Curiosity Season 1 is all about divisions and how to get past them. Richard writes extensively on this topic in his book, It's a Freaking Mess How to Thrive in Divisive Times. For this episode, choose your thoughts, choose your feelings. Richard reads an excerpt from It's a Frickin' Mess. Here it is.
1: We have the ability to choose both our thoughts and our feelings. I admit that this is sometimes hard to believe. We may be more likely to suppose the opposite. I can't help what I feel or what I think. Sure, I can accept what I say or do is my choice, but choosing my thoughts and feelings? No, not really. They choose me. That is how it often seems. I, and I imagine you too, have experienced times when the mind, seemingly on its own, rehashes scenes or memories over and over again. Some of the scenes may be full of feeling, and we don't seem to be able to stop them recurring. Sometimes it seems as if we're victims of our own thoughts and feelings. There are times, however, when we do have experience of changing our thoughts and feelings deliberately. If you tried that exercise on finding common ground with another, chapter 12, you would have noticed that in the space of about a minute, a deliberate change of thought from concentration on difference to concentration on commonality, led to new feelings. We can switch the channel in our own minds without even having to find the remote, just by thinking of something else. More on this later in this chapter. Thoughts change feelings. Most of our feelings are emotional reactions to the thoughts going on in our minds, The main exception to this is our emotional response to physical danger, which usually moves faster than, and so precedes, complex thoughts. If you nearly fall off a cliff, you will probably feel fear, which is a natural and useful deterrence against falling off cliffs. We usually do not have a choice about whether or not to have this kind of emotion. Most of our cliffs, however, are mental. By mental cliffs, I mean the thoughts we hold of enmity and danger, the thoughts that cause us pain. We have more choice over these feelings because we have more choice over the thoughts that created them. If you vividly remember a terrifying scene in a movie you went to years ago, your pulse will speed up. The mental choice to remember this scene is enough to create a whole slew of emotional and physical effects The feelings of fear associated with this thought are accompanied by increased heart rate, increased rate of breathing, increased secretion of fight and flight hormones like cortisol and adrenaline, and increased blood flow in the fight-flight-associated amygdala in the more primitive part of the brain. A strong judgmental thought about a politician we dislike can do the same thing. If you want to test this out, and I don't recommend it, Think of the politician you most dislike. Focus intently on the worst thing you think they've ever done. Let your judgmental feelings arise as they will, and see what happens to your pulse. This gives you a measure of the power you allow that politician to have over you. Sometimes we imagine that disaster will follow an event we disapprove of, and this imagining of a future dark scenario then sets off a similar adrenalized train of feelings and physical effects in our bodies, even though we cannot know what that future will eventually bring. In personal relationships, you can reverse this effect, that is, move away from fight flight emotions, when you shift from judgment of the person to focusing on their best qualities. This shift of the focus of your mind can simultaneously change your feelings from tense disapproval, contempt or anger, to relaxed openness, kindness or pleasure. We have a similar choice when looking back at past events. Unhappy people tend to focus on the things that went wrong for them. Happier people tend to focus on the things that went well. Choosing our thoughts It's one thing to recognize that our thoughts create most of our feelings. It's another to accept that we can actually choose our own thoughts. We have probably all experienced those times when our minds seem out of control and appear to be in charge of what we think. It is in the nature of our minds to move in almost continual thought. We have thousands of thoughts per day. And a good proportion of these are repetitive, unproductive and not highly conducive to contentment. Our minds are built to think. Like exuberant, muddy puppies, thoughts jump up on the pressed, clean clothes of our mental intentions. It is up to us how we harness this playful energy. We cannot harness it by trying to stop it. It doesn't work to tell our minds not to think either generally or on a particular subject. For example, if I tell you not to think of a giraffe, of course you have to think of a giraffe in order to try not to think of it. In order to change your course of thinking, the trick is to make a substitution. You can't not think of a giraffe any more than you can not think of a particular politician. But you can think of something else. In such simple ways, we can direct our thoughts to what we decide to focus on Our brains can only focus on one thing at a time consciously. And one great perk we all have is that we get to choose what that focus is. Our selection of where we focus our intention is one of the keys to our own happiness. So, yes, we do have the power to choose what we think. In fact, our own thoughts are one of the few things over which we really do have power. Hey, but wait, it's not always that easy. Sometimes there is so much emotion connected to a thought that I just can't get it out of my mind. I don't know how to stop. When thoughts are highly charged with emotion, changing these thoughts may sometimes require a different approach. Feelings energize thoughts. While it's true that thoughts create feelings, it's also true that feelings enliven thoughts. If you are angry about an insult from someone, for example, you might suddenly find yourself remembering another insult from someone else. To use a computer analogy, it's as if many peeve-filled thought documents are stored in the anger file. Click on that anger file and all the peeves are there ready to lend support to this new angry feeling. Another example. When you've just had an argument with someone close to you and it's not yet resolved, do you find yourself thinking of all the other annoying things this person has ever done? Or do you find yourself thinking of their finest qualities? Sometimes the thought we have is so bound up with feeling That it's impossible to know where thought and feeling begin and end. We could call this entity a thought feeling. If I have an angry judgmental thought about someone, where is the boundary between the judgmental thought in my mind and the anger in my body? Judgment feeds anger, and anger feeds judgment in a tangle of energy. Yes, exactly. So what do I do when this thought feeling is so strong that I don't seem to be able to shift it with a change of focus. What do I do when I'm furious about what someone has done, actions that I believe have hurt many people, and I can't change this powerful thought feeling? What do I do when I make a real strong effort to change the focus of my thinking, but whenever I drop my guard, the old habits of thinking and feeling just come back? Changing the core of a divisive thought feeling. When the predominant feeling is anger, you can change the feeling through understanding the cause of the anger within you, as I describe in chapter seven, the pleasure of dropping anger and how to do it. I have found this successful at times of outrage. In addition, or alternatively, you can do the following exercise, which is a kind and effective way of opening a slammed door of judgment. Exercise, the four questions. One of the best methods I've encountered for changing thought feelings that seem too strong for us to shift is a form of self-inquiry taught by the author, Byron Katie. Katie, who in the 1980s had suffered from depression, phobia, and addiction, describes an epiphany in 1986, when she stopped believing that her negative thoughts were reality. Since then, Katie has taught millions four questions that create freedom from fixed positions of judgment. Her method has been recommended by many professional therapists, for example, the best-selling author Dr. Daniel G. Amen, psychiatrist, clinical neuroscientist, and brain imaging expert. Here are Katie's four questions. 1 Is it true? Two. Can you absolutely know that it's true? Three, how do you react what happens when you believe that thought? Four, who would you be without that thought? Following is why I think these questions can be so effective, especially when we have emotionally charged judgmental thoughts. Question one. Is it true? Question two. Can you absolutely know that it's true? The power of these two questions can be quite surprising. There is no direct challenge. No one is saying, hey, what you think is not true, which would incur defensiveness. They're just questions, sparks for the gentle fire of self-inquiry. If we ask these questions to ourselves with a genuine interest in finding the truth, it is usually very difficult to say yes to both of them. The answer to the second question, can you absolutely know that it's true, is nearly always, no, I can't. Because we realize that we cannot be absolutely sure that our judgmental thoughts about something are the whole truth. There must surely be things we don't know especially if it's about a person we've never met, and, almost certainly, about anyone at all. Let's take two popular political beliefs, each believed by tens of millions of people. Hillary Clinton is a criminal, and Donald Trump is stupid. Each of these beliefs is associated with feelings of anger, disgust, contempt, or hatred. Question two, can I absolutely know that it's true? Can I be completely certain that Hillary Clinton is a criminal? No, for many reasons. On one practical level, using private email accounts for government business was not unique to Clinton. Colin Powell, John Kerry, Ivanka Trump have all sent and or received official emails through private email accounts though on a much smaller scale. Clinton admitted she made a mistake. Did she have criminal intent? Republicans say yes, Democrats say no. The FBI, led by a Republican, concluded that criminal intent could not be proved. Given the fact that I know that politicians make up some things and exaggerate others, how can I trust what either side says about this? Politicians and media can, and did, make hundreds of different arguments about these servers. But I cannot, if I'm honest, absolutely know that Hillary Clinton is a criminal. Question two, can I absolutely know that it's true? Can I be completely certain that Donald Trump is stupid? No, I cannot. He won the presidency in 2016 through very clever use of social media. The analytics firm MediaQuant estimated that between October 2015 and November 2016, Trump earned the equivalent of $5.6 billion in free media reporting through his deliberate use of outrageous statements. This was a very useful advertising advantage in the lead up to the election. Trump also understood the anger and worry of millions of people and became the mouthpiece that represented their anger i may or may not like such tactics but stupid they were not i may think that trump made other errors but i cannot truthfully know that donald trump is stupid in these two examples i attempted to give a few logical reasons why i could not know they were the truth but it is not actually necessary to find reasons all that is necessary is the recognition that we cannot absolutely know we are right. One of the reasons Katie's two questions are so powerful is that they rock the black and white depictions of divisiveness. I believe this and I'm right. They believe that and they're wrong. These first two of Katie's questions challenge the absolutes because in most cases we have to admit, no, I cannot be absolutely sure. The certainty is blurred, and the sharp line created by the knife knowledge of rightness is diffused to include more possibilities. There could be a seed of doubt, some maybes meandering uncertainly, and perhaps a little more kindness to those who believe differently. This rocking of certainty creates an important opening. Hey, wait a minute. My belief is not necessarily reality, this is just a thought. Already we have begun to de-weld ourselves from the harsh absolute of believing my thought is the absolute reality for me and everyone else. With this, polarization and anger diminish. The fire of blame is watered with an ounce of humility. Question three. How do you react? What happens when you believe that thought? Most people respond by saying that when they think a divisive thought, they feel tense, uncomfortable, angry, apprehensive. Believing Clinton is a criminal, for example, or Trump is stupid, is often associated with hateful feelings that feel not much more pleasant for the thinker than for the person being thought about. This question of self-inquiry can help clarify the emotion that surrounds the belief. How do you react? What happens when you believe that thought? Katie does not ask people to drop their belief. That would not be respectful. And it would also be counterproductive because no one likes to be told what to think or not think. The person is helped to be aware of a simple correlation, divisive beliefs, which have already been examined and found to be just thoughts, not necessarily true, and certainly not the whole truth, do not feel good to hold. It is the person's choice what they do with that information, and whether they wish to continue these beliefs or not. Question four, who would you be without that thought? Most people realize that they would actually be just fine without the divisive belief. They describe feeling more relaxed, content, perhaps happy, while contemplating the process of dropping their judgmental belief. The question is a gentle challenge to the temptation to hold on to a divisive belief by identifying it as part of who we are. The welding of the belief to our sense of ego can be dropped without danger to ourselves. For example, if the description, Clinton is a criminal or Trump is stupid, is taken to be the party position and I am identified with that party position, I need to know that I will be okay with myself if this identification is changed. I need to know it's safe. One more step, turn the thought around. There is one final step that helps de-weld an emotional judgment from what we might think of as the truth. Katie calls it the turnaround. It's an invitation to try out the opposite of your judgment. Here are a few examples playing with the beliefs Clinton is a criminal, Trump is stupid. The turnaround. Clinton has integrity. Trump is smart. Or... Another kind of turnaround, I am a criminal. I am stupid. These turnarounds are ways of playing with our former absolute beliefs in order to counteract black-white either-or thinking, the kind of thinking that is associated with judgment, anger and hatred. The turnaround jangles the fixed wires of certainty. It takes some flexibility to play this game, The reward is greater freedom from judgmental thinking. I call it a game because it should be played with curiosity, fun and kindness to yourself. When you do the turnaround, you're not creating another absolute, nor are you putting yourself down. You're playing with another possibility. It's not, I am a criminal as a judgment. It's more of a gentle questioning, as in, What part of my thinking might be criminal could it be considered criminal as in my bad to make an absolute judgment about someone and shout lock her up without knowing her intention or truly understanding clinton's alleged crime or with regard to the belief trump is stupid what part of my thoughts might be stupid Could it be my black-and-white thinking that refused to recognize Trump's cleverness in various arenas? Or my assumptions that others who spoke of his total stupidity knew the whole truth? The power of choice. We have so many choices we can make, including the choice to challenge, with kindness, our own divisive beliefs we are nearly always focused on something, whether we are conscious of this or not. You could say that we have two choices in life about how we focus. We can actively choose what we focus on, or we can passively allow the focus of our lives to be selected for us by the haphazardly accrued habits of our mind, by the otherizing forces in the media, and by the words and actions of others. We can focus our own minds or have them focused for us. The former gives us power over our own lives. The latter creates dependency on whatever life serves up. When we choose thoughts that lead to less divisive, more elevated feelings, we tend to be happier.
0: Thanks for listening to Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette. Episode 23 is scheduled to come out in two weeks. Tune in to hear Richard speak on how transcending divisiveness makes you happy. Subscribe now so you don't miss it. If you'd like to get in touch, you can always reach Richard at superpowercuriosity at gmail.com. Also, feel free to write a review on Apple Podcasts, Or send an episode to a friend. It really helps. Till next time, stay curious.